we're beginning a new series because there's a special holiday coming up in November. And the kids, you know, just a while ago, Tracy's asked them, what are some of the great holidays of November? And, and you know, they didn't mention this one, which is kind of why I'm preaching about it, too. Is on November 23rd, the, the church, the Christian calendar, we celebrate Christ the King Sunday. And I'm wondering how many of you have, what, what sort of plans do you have with your family for Christ the King Sunday? Any sort of special dinner or everyone's coming together? Anybody wondering what I'm talking about? <laughs> That's why I'm preaching about it. On 23rd, is actually, it actually is the time when the whole church, in the, in the Christian calendar, it's the Sunday before Advent, when the whole church, or many of the churches who celebrate the calendar, focus on Christ the King. They talk about Jesus being King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, I know that if I were to ask you, and you can nod your head if you agree with this, how many of you would say Jesus is King? He is Lord. Right. And we all affirm that, right? And you can imagine if some, and I, I think about it, if someone were to ask you that, someone who didn't know about Jesus were to ask you, you know, would you say Jesus is King? We'd say, yeah, I think Jesus is King. But then what if they asked, so how does that matter in your life? How does that work out in your life? And, I mean, honestly, I don't know about you, but I start thinking, how does that work out? How do I live that out in my life? And what got me thinking about the sum is not only is it the holiday, but also some of the things that God has been doing in me. But, but uh, I got a, an email from Regent, uh, where I went to seminary. And they have this new uh, Bible study. I think it's eight weeks. Or something. It's called Reframe. But anyways, part of what they were talking about before, uh, before they talked about the, the study is that they did, they've done some research, or they've, they've read some of the research, and one of the things that they found was that uh, of Christians who are 18 to 29 years old, said 84% of them, so if we had 10 of them standing here, 8 of them would say, I have no idea how Jesus matters in my job. That's pretty astounding to me. And I wonder if we were to ask you like, about your vocation, about what you're doing, how does Jesus matter in your job right now? Or how does Jesus matter uh, in your community? How does faith matter in our lives outside of Sunday morning and Bible studies? Those are powerful questions. It's interesting, I've been thinking about this some, and I was, I was reading, and as, um, you know, in the 1800s, they had uh, a, a big shift in culture, and it was, the, the scientists started to grow, and, and our culture began to shift away from uh, faith in God and more towards science. It's called the Enlightenment, for those of you who are into that sort of stuff. But, um, and ever since then, there's been this, pre- or this push to try and separate religion or faith from life. To say, you know, you can, you can be religious if you want to, just don't make it public. Don't force it on everyone else. And there's this, even in Canada, we feel it. I don't know if you feel it, I feel it. It's, it's bad manners to talk about faith in public. I mean, people get awkward or they, they ask, you know, maybe you could kind of tone down the religious talk. I mean, you, they can't really talk about God in politics. It's bad manners to talk about faith or creation or Jesus in schools. It's bad manners to talk about, about God in public buildings. It's even become bad manners to talk about God in conversations with our friends. I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor, so I kind of do it anyways. I mean, people kind of maybe cut me a little bit of slack because they think, well, that's what he does, of course. But 
I still feel a little bit awkward and I talk with people who aren't Christian and I can see, you can just see how uneasy they get as they start talking about Jesus. I mean, many of you know this. You have friends who aren't Christians. Bless you. We should have friends that aren't Christians. And as you start talking about your faith, and not even telling them what they should believe, just saying, like, here's what I see God doing in my life, you can just see they start getting uncomfortable. And you start, I mean, we, we see that in the world around us. It's interesting. I was even asked um, uh, to speak um, at an event. And, you know, I, I was actually uh, asked to speak at the Remembrance Day thing. And part of what they told me is, you know, you know, last year it was a little too religious. If you can, you know, kind of keep it about Remembrance Day and kind of keep, you know, the religion part to a minimum. And I'm still kind of working out how do I take that because I value, I want to be one who speaks at events like that. But, I mean, I follow Jesus and I think following Jesus has public, it has social implications. I mean, if he's king of kings, that changes how we live. That changes the world, whether you follow him or not. And so I'm still working that out. But we still, I, even, I feel this pressure even today. This, you know, if we're going to speak publicly, kind of keep Jesus off to the side. And I think you know, that there are things that we do as Christians that, that even when we don't mean to, we can kind of play into this. You know, our culture around us tells, you, tells us, you know, it's bad manners, keep your faith to yourself. And so sometimes we do. I mean, it feels awkward to talk with people about Jesus, which is interesting because, I mean, he really lived. And I would say he really died and rose again. Like, those are just history. I mean, we don't have trouble talking about Julius Caesar. But it feels awkward to talk about Jesus. But, if we keep Jesus just to ourselves, our faith just to ourselves, and we play into this separation of faith and life. Another interesting thing that can sort of plant us, or that can, that can um, encourage this split, is when we make following Jesus all about how we get to heaven. I mean, if Jesus is Lord and Savior and King, and we, make, we kind of reduce the gospel down just to, here's what you need to believe to get to heaven, that can, in, our, in an ironic way, separate life from faith. I mean, it leaves people wondering, if, if I'm following Jesus, and it doesn't really matter until I die, what do I do with the rest of my life in between? Now, we know, and I'm grateful for this church, because we know that there's more to life. There's more to the gospel even than salvation. As, as main and as central as that is, it's also about Jesus being king, being Lord of our lives, and that matters in our lives now. We're not here just studying the Bible just for our own sake. We're doing it because we're following Christ. We're disciples. And I'm grateful for us as a church that we are like that. There are some churches that, don't, that aren't like that. And so when people from the outside, when they see our faith, when they observe us and we make faith only about salvation and what happens when you die, they start wondering, well, they kind of make their own conclusions. But I guess being a Christian means it's, you know, that you're, you go to heaven when you die, but until then you just be nice to people. You go to church on Sunday and you kind of, uh, you know who to judge and who to condemn if they don't follow the biblical way of life. I think that's kind of a common idea of what people have of us as followers of Jesus. It's mainly that we, we do something on Sunday morning, we go to this building, we try to be nice to some people, and we're really awful to others. But we need to keep talking with them about who Jesus is. That he is the king of kings. That he reigns at God's right hand 
right now. That the fact that he died and rose again matters in our world right now. As we're thinking about it, even Rick, as you were talking about, you went to one of the sessions on, on compassion, mercy, and justice. <clears throat> and how, I think in some churches, I don't think that's so much here, but in some churches, compassion, mercy, and justice is kind of an extracurricular activity. It's something you can do if that's kind of how God has wired you. But I'm saying, if Jesus is king, and if the gospels say or speak of how God saved us, but also how God became king, how God instituted his kingdom, then the gospel is inherently political. It is inherently social and about justice and compassion and mercy. Have you ever thought about this, some about how Jesus is king in our lives? How Jesus is king in this world? I mean, it's a big question. I mean, think about this. In a couple weeks, we're going to start preparing for Christmas. Now, that, that Halloween day, we do know about, right? That one, that one, we do know. But think about some of the songs that we sing. I know we're going to sing this song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. What about this one? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Right. King. And what does that mean for us when we sing those? I think as, I mean, in this church, I know we talk about, we know what, we, what we're talking about when we say Jesus is Savior. But when we say Jesus is King, what do we mean? How do we live that out? How does it work out in our lives? And it's interesting how, and I don't know quite where this comes from, but how for us, we can kind of split Savior and King and Messiah. We can kind of categorize them into different categories. But you know, in the first century, when Jesus was walking the earth, it was hard to talk about King and Messiah without including the word Savior. Or it was hard to say Savior and not include the idea of King, God's King, God's Messiah, His Anointed One. How those were held together. So when we say that Jesus is is sitting at God's right hand, he rules over creation. He rules over this world even now. How does that work out in our lives? That's why I'm interested and want us to read the scriptures this morning. Reading from 2 Samuel. Let's take a look at this together. If you want to, you can open your Bibles to 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7 verse 1 to 17, or if you want to, you can read it with us on this white sheet. So, just to give you a little background, so this is uh, King David, he's, um, God has blessed him, and he finally has this season of rest in his kingdom. After a lot of battle and, and strife, he says, after the king had settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says, Are you the one to build, uh, build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. 
Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be a ruler over the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of earth, of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home for their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now this is the part that we're going to be focusing on this morning. Listen to this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this, of this entire revelation. So one thing that as I'm reading this or hearing this scripture is that God always intended to be the king. To be the king of, of his people, the king of Israel. But we see in this text here the root of a promise that he made to the king David. That, his, that someone from his family would be God's great king. But I want to come back to this point that God always intended to be king. I mean, he kind of alludes to it here a little bit. He said, even when I brought the people up out of Israel, or sorry, out of Egypt, even when I brought them up out of Egypt, I did not ask for a house to be built for me. But here's the thing that God did do. God did lead the people of Israel by day as a pillar of smoke and by night as a pillar of fire, delivering them from, people, delivering them from Egypt, but also bringing them up, bringing them across the, or sorry, across, uh, the Red Sea. God is leading his people, leading them through the desert for 40 years. God was king. Because if the one who leads is the king, then God was leading and he is the king. But it didn't last that long. In fact, Samuel, uh, this book that we are reading, Samuel was the last judge, one of the last leaders when God was king. But Samuel had sons who were pretty rotten. And so as Samuel was getting older, people said, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. We want legitimacy like them. That's how we'll know we're our peoples, if we can have a king, a human we can point to. And Samuel was pretty distraught by it. And he comes to the Lord, and the Lord says to him, now this is the key part. This is 1 Samuel 8, verse 7, I think. Chapter 8, verse 7. And the Lord says, Samuel, do not be distraught. For it's not you they've rejected, but it's me they've rejected as king. God always desired to be king. He always meant for him to be king over his people. So that was the story with Samuel. So Samuel, following the people's wishes, God honors that. (laughs) 
He says, it's, going to go, it's not going to go well for you. Kings are going to take the best of your land. They're going to take the best of your sons and your daughters. But if you want a king... So God directs Samuel, and he finds uh, Shaul, or Saul, makes him king. And it doesn't go well. And then we hear in this story here about God recounting how he brought David to be king. He said, David, I brought you from behind the sheep to be leader in front of my people. It's a little bit of Hebrew play on words there, to see how far God brought him, from a, little, from a young man in a, in a shepherd's field to king over Israel. And then we fast forward to the point where we are now here, where David is lounging in his palace, a palace made of cedar. And I can only imagine that in, in the ancient world, to have a house made of cedar was a big deal. Probably like in our language, something like to have a house made of gold and ivory. But I recognize David's desire to honor God in this. He says, you know, I'm living in this amazing palace and God is still, and my, my God is still living in a tent. I'm going to build for him a palace. He even uh, talks it over, confers with Nathan, the prophet, his advisor. Nathan says, boy, do what's in your heart because God seems to be with you. And then it's at that night when God comes, the word of God comes to Nathan. He says, tell this to my servant David. And God asks this big, long, rhetorical question, are you the one who's going to build me a house? (laughs) No, I'm going to be the one who builds you a house. And God makes this amazing promise to David. And that's where I want us to focus this morning. To focus in at that last paragraph about God's promise of a king. Now, the first thing that I noticed as I was reading this week, the first thing I heard God saying to me is that I will establish this king. Don't think that you have to establish this kingdom by violence and by war, the ways that humans usually establish their kingdoms. God is going to establish this kingdom. And we can go into the difference between God's kingdom and humans' kingdom, or people's or men's kingdom. But suffice to say that God is going to be the one who establishes this kingdom. The other thing that I noticed is that God said that I will make this king and he will build a house for me. Now, house is an interesting word. Because in the Hebrew world, they use the word house, like literally, like a house. But they also use house, like a family. Like there will be a Messiah, and he'll come from the house of David. It means he'll come from the family of David. He'll be a descendant. So no doubt, I think we are meant to hear this, that one of David's descendants will build a, a temple. And Solomon, his son, built an amazing temple to the Lord. But I also hear God speaking of house in terms of family. And I love how the Holy Spirit does this, because just this morning, Tracy was talking with our kids about how we've been adopted into God's family. We hear that in the letters of Paul, how we are brothers and sisters in Christ, how God is our Father because of Jesus. Jesus is building a bigger house, not a temple, not a house of stone and gold and cedar, but a house of people. Jesus is building a bigger house. And I hear this too, especially in John's Gospel. Many of you remember the first part of John's Gospel? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Remember that part? A few sentences or a few lines down it says, 
But those whom he had come to did not receive him. Or he came to his own people, and they did not receive him. But those who did receive him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And I think, I think we need to try and hear this passage like those first followers of Jesus would have. And they realize that Jesus is this great king, and they realize that he may not, building, he may not be building a temple with stones, but he's building a new kind of house. He's growing God's house, his family. I mean, think about what God, what God did through Jesus. How in Jesus, not only were the people of Israel faithfully following Messiah, not only are they part of his family, but God throws the doors open. And we, the Gentiles, are able to come in. We are adopted into this family. Jesus is building a house for God, but it's nothing like we expected. So that's the, that's the second thing, that, that this king will build a house. The next thing that I hear as I was listening to this passage is I hear God saying that I will be his father and he will be my son. And I'm going to love him. My love will never be taken from him. Now, I don't know what you think of when you hear that. But one of the things that I think of is I hear the voice of God when Jesus was baptized. When Jesus came up out of the water and the voice of God says, this is my son whom I love and him I am so pleased. This is actually, God says something similar to this too when Jesus is on top of the mountain with with Moses and Elijah and he's transfigured. His face shines bright like the sun and again we hear God's voice saying, this is my son whom I love and him I am so pleased. I see this connection again of God taking Jesus as a son. And not only that, but we know, I mean, that, that, that God, through the Holy Spirit, Mary became pregnant with a son and they were going to give him the name Jesus. That Jesus is God's son. The son whom he loved. But there's this interesting part of this passage. Let me just read it. It said, And when he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. And I, I left that unbolded in your sheet there, if you notice it, because I wasn't sure what to do with that until yesterday. I started realizing, you know, Jesus didn't do wrong. Jesus wasn't punished because of something he'd done. I think Jesus was taking up all of Israel, as a king does. He was representative, and that's maybe a time or a discussion for another time. But I heard what the prophet Isaiah said about the servant of God, about who we understand as Jesus. He said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we have been healed. I thought, boy, how does this, how does this small part of, of God's promise fit with Jesus? And I see it. I mean, it's not a perfect one-for-one match, but I see how Jesus was punished for our iniquities how he was beat with the rods of men and flogged with the, with the um, weapons of humanity. I see it in Jesus' life. But it's not because of his sin, it's because of ours. as humanity. So even here, I still see this connection with Christ. But here's the part that, that gets me, is that God said, I will establish his kingdom forever. And if you look at Solomon's kingdom, 
After he was dead, his kingdom split in half. And in just a matter of a few generations on both sides, before the whole kingdom collapsed and, and all of Israel was taken into exile. But the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they, heard, they remembered God's promise. And even though they knew that it didn't work out in Solomon, they knew it was going to work out in his son. And one of David's, and one of David's descendants. They were waiting for a Messiah, for a great king who would come from the house of David. We're going to talk some more about this next week. I see these connections through this passage to Jesus. And I think those who were around him, who, who followed him as Messiah, they saw these connections too. I'm not sure if they read them and made the connections like we do. I think it was just in the culture that they lived. It was in the air they breathed. They were waiting for a Messiah, for a Savior to come. And they recognized it in Jesus. God has always wanted to be king over his people. And we see the root of the promise here in God's promise to David that he would establish the kingdom, that this great king would build his house, that this king would be his son and God would be his father and he would love him, that there would be wounds and, and, and afflictions from man on him. And we understand that as, as Jesus receiving the punishment that brought us peace. But God would establish his kingdom forever. And God has done that in Christ. I mean, if you hear the Gospels, as you read in Matthew's Gospel, it talks about after Jesus was tempted, he went out to preach the Gospel. He said, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus began his kingdom. And we look around us, and I know, we look around us, we say, Jason, where is this kingdom? We see brokenness and pain and suffering around us. I know that Satan is at work and destroying people's lives. Where is this kingdom? I see glimpses in the kingdom of this right here, that we are gathered together under Messiah, under Jesus. I see glimpses of kingdom as you tell me stories about how God is at work through you blessing others and others are coming to faith in Christ. I see glimpses of the kingdom. And it's true. It's not fully consummated yet. It's not fully here yet, but it is coming. And the first step has already begun in Jesus having come and lived and died and rose again. An example, one of the clearest examples I've heard is, is the battle um, of D-Day. We're going to be talking some about that you know, in the next week. Uh, Remembrance Day, too. But how the troops came from England. And on D-Day, they took the beachhead. And it was still, I think, a year or two before the war was finally completed. That was the decisive moment. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the decisive moment. And we're just waiting for the battle to finally, or the war to finally be won. So Jesus is king now. He is Lord of Lords now. So I'm guessing most of you, this is probably not brand new theology for you, right? Most of you know this. I mean, when I said, how many of you would say Jesus is king? You're all saying, yes, I see Jesus is king. And hopefully you're seeing, like even in this passage, how it's confirmed to us again that Jesus is king, that he is Lord over all of creation. So it's not the fact, it's not the theology that I think that we wrestle with. It's, okay, how do we translate this into our lives? Am I right? How does this work out in my life? Well, here's a few things, and these are just suggestions for us, encouragement for us, how we work this out. 
One is that we keep reading the Gospels. We keep letting the Gospels shape who we are. Read them again and again to watch Jesus. To watch how he lives in this world and how we ought to live as followers of him. To listen to the things he says. To do our best to listen the way that that he means them. Not just the way that we read them, but the way that he means them. See, I know that many of you, how many of you here have read the Gospels at least once? Right. You've read the Gospels and you know what's in them. But I'm saying we need to keep reading them. That they keep reforming us. They keep showing us again who Jesus is. I think here's one thing that I realize too, is that in a lot of churches or Christian circles, that it became, faith became more about doctrines that you know rather than a faith that you live. Let me say that again. I think in a lot of Christian circles, Christianity is about a doctrine that you know and not so much a faith that you live. I'm grateful for us as a church. I think we do our best to work out the faith that we have. But I want to encourage you that faith, that following Jesus is just that. It's a faith that we are called to live. It's not just doctrines that we know and say, yes, I believe that and that and that, so I know that I'm, you know, that I'm right on these things. That's not the extent of faith. It's good to know faith. It's good to study theology, to know what God is saying, to know how to understand it. That's good. But it has to work out into life, a faith that we live. See, in some places, in some churches, culturally, and I don't think they would ever say this, but culturally it works out where following Jesus or being a Christian, maybe I shouldn't even say following, being a Christian is all about the stuff you know, less about how you live, if that even enters the conversation. It's just making sure you know the right things. Now I'm saying it's important for us to know the right things. It's important for us to study the Word of God. That's essential to our lives. But it also has to keep working out. We have to keep saying, okay, like Judy was talking about today, Lord, I've just read this. What do you want me to do with this in my life this week or today? We keep taking what God is doing, listening to the Holy Spirit and living out our faith. So that's the first one. Keep hearing the Gospels and living them out. The second part is this, is valuing whole people. This is one of the ways that we live out this good news that Jesus is King and Lord is valuing whole people. Now, again, this is something that I think, like I'm encouraged about the way we handle this as a church. But I know that there are some extreme examples where people will say, I don't have time to serve people food as a ministry because the most important thing is their souls. I need to talk to them about their soul. Now, granted, there's some truth to that. But there are some people who say, I don't care about people's lives until all I care about is whether they get saved or not. And then once they get saved, I just go on to the next person. I don't think that's what God desires from us. I think God desires people, I mean, God is passionate about our soul. That's why he came as his son and and Jesus lived and died and rose again. He cares about our soul. But he also cares about our lives, about our whole bodies. I was thinking about this as an example. As a father, I think of my two sons. I am constantly praying for their soul, for their spiritual health, that they would know Jesus and that they would follow him for their whole lives. I'm constantly praying about that. 
but I'm also making sure that they have enough food to eat. I'm also doing my best to make sure they have clothes to wear. I'm also doing my best to make sure that they know how to, how to work. As a father, and God is our father, we've been talking about that already. We've been adopted into this family. He cares about us, about our faith, about our souls, but he also cares about the fact that we have enough food to eat, that we have places to live, that if our hearts are broken, that they're bound up, that if our mind is broken, that, that we are cared for. God cares about whole people. I mean, Jesus talked about it. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Whole person. And I think sometimes we just expect people, or we just assume people, all they need to do is love God with their soul, and that's it. I just, the gospel is bigger than that. God cares about us. So he desires for us to care about whole people, about their heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we're at work helping them know and they're helping them grow in their relationship with Jesus. Absolutely. Absolutely that we're helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus. But also that we're helping them grow in their relationship with their spouse or their family. Or that we're encouraging people in their relationships at work. That we're talking together with how our faith matters in our jobs. Matters in what God has called us to do, whether you're retired or not. That we're talking about how God is at work, what, how God's kingdom matters in our community. That God's kingdom is growing here. That we keep listening to God's Holy Spirit. You know, we've talked about how in some circles, in some circles, faith or being a Christian is all about what you know. It doesn't really matter how you live or people kind of give that impression. We're talking about how that's only part of the gospel or maybe not even the gospel. The gospel is about what we know and how we live as a result of it. That we know that Jesus is Lord, that he is our Savior, and how we live as a result. But we have to keep listening for God's Holy Spirit. And what I mean by this is that we keep following God's Spirit and doing these crazy new experiments or ministries. I mean, I think about this church and some of the ways that you have followed the Holy Spirit to, do, to experiment in new things. I mean, think about it, planting a church here. It's risky business. I mean, Walter, one thing that I remember you saying a few times is how this is the first church that I've been planted here in 100 years. I was talking with another person how they were talking about how some of the conference leaders were saying, you guys are crazy for planting a church in Balfour. There's just not the population there. And you guys listened to the Holy Spirit. You guys did crazy stuff. You experimented, and God blessed it and grew his kingdom here about building this building. I mean, people are saying, let's wait until we have more money, until things are in just And you guys listen to the Holy Spirit and you built this church building. I think about how the Holy Spirit is at work in you. I think about, it was two years ago that Jill, your small group, you guys were talking about what can we do? You guys were reading Hole in the Gospel and you guys started uh, supporting this well in Togo. And how this church has raised thousands of dollars to bless that community in Togo with a well, with clean water. I think about how the Holy Spirit has been at work in, in, for example, Pat in the prayer group, in Trina. You guys are talking about it today, how this, we should get together and pray. This amazing Holy Spirit-guided experiment and how God is blessing that and using that to grow his kingdom here. I think about the Dickiesons, about you and the group who are gathered around the garden. I mean, people were saying, even people in our church were saying, this is a ridiculous idea, it's just rocks out there. How are you going to grow anything out there? 
And look what God has done. Look what God has done. The amount, the, the hundreds of pounds of food that God has provided to, to people in our community through this. Not only that, but all the people who have joined in, people who aren't even a part of this church who have come to help and to, to cultivate the garden. It's amazing what God has done. So I see this as part of us working out, as listening to the Holy Spirit, caring for whole people, and living out the gospel. Okay, so we hear God saying, we, maybe we're seeing this today, hopefully you're seeing Jesus as king and how this begins to work out in our lives. We don't just keep our faith private that because Jesus is king, it has social implications, has political implications. It matters in our lives outside of Sunday morning. But the question is, where do we start, right? I mean, when we start talking about the kingdom, it's so large, it can begin to, begin to feel like, where do we start with all this? Because everything matters, where do we start with this? So this week, I want you to do one thing. It's kind of a big one, but I want you to do it. I'm going to do it too. I want you to read the Gospel of Matthew. The whole Gospel. <laughs> the whole thing. And I would ask, that if you can, try to read the whole thing all at once, which I'm not even sure how I'm going to do that. <laughs> but read in big chunks. Read in big chunks of the Gospel of Matthew. And I know some of you are so busy. You're thinking, come on, Jason. I mean, when am I going to have time to do that? I'm asking you to find a way to make time. Read the Gospel of Matthew and listen for themes of kingdom and king. Notice the places where you see Jesus talked about as Savior. Write those down. That's awesome. Jesus is our Savior. He's the one. Because of him, we've been forgiven. That's a central part of the Gospel. But also, make sure that we don't lose the parts where it talks about Jesus as king. And about how God's kingdom has come. And listen to the parables that Jesus teaches about what the kingdom looks like. Listen to Jesus after he's gone through the temptation. What does he preach about the gospel? He says, repent for the kingdom has come. What is Jesus' gospel about? Also listen to how God is speaking, how God is reaffirming that Jesus is his son. At the baptism, at the transfiguration. When God says, this is my son whom I love and him I'm so pleased. Even watch through the Passion, the end of Matthew's Gospel, when Jesus is arrested and he's on trial. Watch to see how, actually, in some ways, it's more like the people of Israel or the religious leaders of the time and the Romans, how actually they are the ones that are on trial because Jesus is the king. Watch the ways that Jesus is acknowledged as king, even though they're mocking him, they're still making this claim that he is king. I mean, think about the sign above the cross. This is the king of the Jews, proclaimed in Latin, in Greek, in Hebrew. Now, granted, granted, Pilate meant it as to mock Jesus. But it's still there. It's still true that he is the king. So read the Gospels this week, paying attention to those themes. Listen for the, the themes of kingdom and king. Imagine what this will be like. I know it's going to be hard, but imagine what this will be like is the conversations you'll have in your small groups. The conversations you'll have as you meet together and talk about this. And maybe your small group's not meeting this week. Call someone in your small group this week and say, hey, are you reading this? What are you hearing God say? I think God wants to do amazing things through us. And I think one of the ways that we grow in this is by hearing Jesus or remembering again that Jesus is our Savior, but also he is God's King, God's Messiah. Amen.